Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 262, and tonight we, I think we're going to be spending most of our evening tonight on the knees of Karathras as yet, um, much to Gandalf's discomfort, but we won't stay there for very long as we begin to flee from Karathras. Um, Tolonial, I agree. Mountain one, everyone else zero at this point. That's right. Um... Okay, so um, quickly before we begin, just uh, I wanted to give a um, a moot update because we have some uh, exciting events coming up. We're really, um, uh, you know, this past year, year, year and a half have been sort of, we've been kind of transitioning back into moots. And uh, now we are, uh, <laughs> we're kind of in, in full flow at this point. The, the coming year's calendar from this coming fall through next spring is uh it's getting pretty full it's getting pretty full so um we have one moot uh well we have two moots that are approaching uh here in the next couple months this month in may we have our first ever canadian moot um, we're going to toronto for maple moot on the 20th of may so i encourage you to uh sign up for maple moot you can still uh we still have opportunities for people to present if you want to present you don't have to be there in person to present sometimes people ask this we often have had people presenting um while attending remotely and that is uh uh that's also perfectly cool so um no problems there uh and um Anyway, so this is going to be this is going to be fun. Really looking forward to uh, hanging out with the folks uh, from the University of Toronto Tolkien Club, uh, who uh, kind of got in touch with us, and we've organized it together. Um, uh, so that's going to be great fun. Looking forward to getting up to Canada. We've been talking about a maple moot for a really long time, and we are uh, uh, I'm excited about that. Right, Bob uh, sadly the wrong end of Canada. That's the problem about doing a Canadian moot, Bob, is that Canada's very large. Uh, there's really there's really no convenient location in Canada um, that is convenient to the rest of Canada, I mean. Um, so, you know, we're kind of doing the best we can there. Um, we might... Um, uh, uh, we might... Though I will say there are rumors... Uh, that we're looking at um, heading out towards the other end of Canada. Um, we are uh, working on a potential follow-up to Maple Moot in Alberta next year, which would be a lot of fun. Um, uh, so anyway, that's um, that's what we're... So we're, we're, we're definitely thinking about kind of roaming around in Canada. I'd also would love to do um, one out in the Maritimes as well. Probably Prince Edward Island um, out in Charlottetown would be awesome. Um, I'm a huge fan of Prince Edward Island. My family spent a lot of time there. And, uh, um, and we have some friends there. So we might, uh, we, we, might, uh, we might go out to PEI. My first response when I was thinking about PEI was like, man, PEI, like, that's convenient to nobody, <laughs> like apart from people who live in PEI. Um, but um, but then again, 
then I was realizing, yeah, I, but again, like no part of Canada is convenient to the rest of Canada. So there you are. And April, you're absolutely right. We could totally do some Anne of Green Gable stuff. Uh, I, I've uh, read a good deal of uh, 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 L.M. Montgomery myself uh, and would be delighted to talk about L.M.M. Uh, while out there. Um, yeah, no, it'd be fun. Um, so um, anyway, yeah, it's um, it's it's. So we're, we're going to probably be kind of roaming around Canada, like not during Maple Moot Live, but like year to year. Uh, we're probably not going to do Maple Moot in like the same spot every single year, um, but we may roam about Canada. So, yeah, Alberta probably next, maybe PEI, who knows? Um, and after that, of course, after Maple Moot on the 20th of May comes Myth Moot, uh, our big gathering down in the Washington, D.C. area, Leesburg, Virginia, to be precise, near Dulles Airport. We are back at our old venue looking forward to uh, evenings around the fire pits again and, uh, uh, you know, getting lost in the bowels of the conference center and everything else. It's going to be great fun. Um, so that is, uh, um, as, <laughs> you know, so Bjorning, you mentioned a moot on a train. We've actually talked about that. Rail moot is a, a real thing that we've actually been considering. Um, how much fun would that be, right? Um, to just get, like, reserve a big train car and, uh, like, get on, you know, I can, you know, ride the train, like, up and down the East Coast or across the country or whatever, it would be, that would be so cool. I would, I would love to, we could stop and pick people up in different spots and everything. It would be awesome. Um, we've also been thinking about, we've begun to be, uh, to think seriously about the possibility of doing a moot on a cruise ship. Also a cruise moot would be pretty awesome. Probably, Something down in the Gulf or the Caribbean um, that would uh, uh, that would be that would be pretty cool. So those are things we're also we're definitely considering. No definite plans on that yet, but they definitely are things we've been talking about. Anyway, Mythmoot uh, is going to be the last weekend in June marvelous time you can join us remotely uh, if you need to if you can uh, if you can make it i strongly encourage it it is such a wonderful uh weekend of community uh just getting together uh it is the annual you know sort of time with my tribe that i really really value um so um yeah yeah that is um uh yeah, really. So there should be the schedule should be going up soon, and the um, lodging should be available soon too for Mythmoot. Both of those are are coming up relatively soon. Um, <laughs> I see. Rin and Green Great Dragon are suggesting Olmoot for the name of <laughs> of the <laughs> of the uh, cruise moot. Right? Yeah, I see that. I see that. Um, the voting for the next Mythgard Academy book, Nancy, should be up soon. Um, the there was uh, the winnowing of the finalists recently, so the finalists should be posted for voting relatively, relatively soon. Relatively, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly when, but that will be coming soon. Um, uh, we're not in any immediate danger of uh, finishing War of the Jewels, so we have a little bit of time still, but um, uh, but it will be uh, it will be coming. Um, yeah, so in the fall, we have a whole bunch, like in the, in the fall and winter, 
we're planning a lot of really fun moods. Um, we've got um, we've got several definitely planned. Uh, definitely Cascade Moot in September, which will be out in Portland. Um, uh, first time to the Pacific Northwest. Can't wait. I've actually never been myself at all to the Pacific Northwest, so it'll be my first visit as well as our first moot out there. Um, we're going to have... Um, <laughs> so... Go lady, I can tell you. If we have a moot in Philly, we're not going to call it Eagle Moot. Um, but um, anyway, uh, sorry, a little football rivalry issue, but uh, I'm working through it. Um, anyway, yeah, so we're going to have Cascade Moot in September. We're going to have uh, Mountain Moot in November back out in Denver. Uh, we're having back in October. In, in, in October, we're having two moots uh, back for uh, to Iowa for Middle Moot and uh, out here in New Hampshire for uh, New England Moot. Um, those are um, those are going to be uh, really, uh, really great fun doing. A, uh, I've been seeing a lot about the planning uh, for those. Um, and that's th those are going to be great. Um, so but we're also thinking about a brand new moot that we are considering, um, which we're, we're looking to see if we can secure a date and a venue for. Um, in another part of the country we've never been to is New Orleans. So we're looking towards a, a Nolens moot. Um, I don't know exactly what we'd call it. Um, but a Cajun moot, possibly, that would work for sure. We haven't, we haven't decided on the name, on it, name for it yet. Um, Evil Dr. Cannon, we're thinking January. Uh, we're thinking January for that. Um, uh, down in uh, uh, down in New Orleans, um, and then we're gonna do Osmoot again. I think uh, I, I, I rumor is we might be heading towards Sydney uh, for Osmoot this coming year. Again, probably the end of January. Though again, dates not confirmed on that. Um, we're also um, uh, uh, we're also looking at um, oh we're gonna we're gonna uh, go back to doing a thing that we actually the very first regional moot that was ever, ever done. And it was really, it was before we started officially doing them. It was kind of informal. Um, and that was actually a regional moot in the mid-Atlantic region, um, which we're actually currently deciding on the final name for. Um, and that's likely to be happening um, uh, next spring uh, as well. Uh, so anyway, yeah. Um, uh, looking forward to, looking forward to all these things. And again, more more ideas and suggestions are coming. We're looking to get Magnolia Moot back in the southeast back up, maybe North Carolina, maybe South Carolina. Um, uh, so, yeah, all kinds. Of, oh, also, uh, uh, there are rumors about the possibility of a Motown Moot in Detroit uh, also. So, you know, again, the, the, none of these are fully confirmed yet, but these are all things that we're thinking about and, uh, uh, and, and working on. So, um Anyway, SoCal, yeah, yeah, SoCal could likely, um, uh, could likely, uh, could likely happen. <laughs> Dark water, I like your moot puns. Um, it reminds me of that my, my, uh, my sons are still, um, upset that we've never hosted New England moot in Vermont so that we could call it Vermoot. Um, that was a, a very old suggestion of my children who, uh, thought that would be a great plan. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah, yeah. So Dizzy, that we are trying to, uh, maintain, uh, <laughs> that, um, uh, maintain the opportunity for, for me to spend time with my family. Um, my, um, uh, um, 
uh, my hope, Dizzy, actually, I would kind of love to see if I could bring at least some of my family with me to Australia uh, next time I come. We're working on that. We'll see what happens. Um, but um, uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway. Oh, and uh, another uh, uh, another possibility that we're working on, uh, which I'm really excited about, is uh, is Brazil going down to Sao Paulo uh, and doing a moot down in Brazil. Um, which is just a really, really fun place to be in the Tolkien world right now. Um, it has been, it's been, it's so, it's been so cool to watch, um, just to, you know, to hear about and, and see the enthusiasm down in, uh, down in Brazil, uh, for Tolkien right now. Uh, uh like Tolkien in Brazil right now, it's, it's kind of like, uh, it's almost like America in the sixties. It's really fun, uh, to see Tolkien interest just kind of booming, uh, down in Brazil right now. It's really fun. Um, so anyway, yeah, um, we're, what that's, you know, we're not sure about exactly when that would be probably not, uh, probably not this year, probably in 2024. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, really, really excited about the possibilities there. There we would probably do, like we did in Osmoot, uh, a multi-day event rather than just a single-day event. Um, but anyway, really, really cool. Lots of really fun opportunities. Um, so lots of moots upcoming. In the meantime, um, go to blackberry.signumuniversity.org and you can click on the events page on the home page of blackberry there and that'll show you all of the moots that are currently open for registration and we've got a bunch of them through the fall we've got most of them through the end of the year now up and ready for uh through the end of the calendar year that is um of 2023 up and uh uh and ready for registration so i would um uh i would encourage you to go and check those out um yeah <laughs> Bjorning, you don't suppose Milwaukee would be up for hosting in the near future? You know, you never know. We could wander about. Um, and yes, uh, Kunk Tater, uh, whose name I still love. Um, yes, there was a Buckeye Moot uh, last year, last July. We had Buckeye Moot, and it was in Cincinnati, uh, is where we held that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Oh man, it is too bad you couldn't come to the PPP mood in Milwaukee. I was there too, <laughs> so yeah, no, that was fun. Um, uh, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you couldn't make, especially if you live in Milwaukee. That's hard. That's hard. But who knows? We might wander back around there. I mean, again, if we're getting up to Detroit, we might we might be able to, you know, uh, you know, wander across and. Uh, uh, come down to, uh, come down to Milwaukee, come down the, you know, the West coast of the lake. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, just wanted to tell you guys about some of the fun, exciting things that are, uh, coming up. Um, and again, remember coming up soon, Maple Moot in Toronto on the 20th of May and Myth Moot, uh, coming up at the end of June. Those are the really big ones. Then it's going to be a little bit of a while. Um, we're going to have a little bit of a moot hiatus until September when we get out to Cascade Moot. And then things will kick up for the fall season. Um, anyway, there we go. So, let us get back into the text now. Here's the bit of this passage that we peeked ahead at last week. 
Enough, enough, cried Gimli. We are departing as quickly as we may. And indeed, with that last stroke, the malice of the mountain seemed to be expended, as if Carothros was satisfied that the invaders had been beaten off and would not dare to return. The thread of snow lifted. The clouds began to break, and the light grew broader. As Legolas had reported, they found that the snow became steadily and steadily more shallow as they went down, so even the hobbits could trudge on. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to come in again on that sentence. As Legolas had reported, they found that the snow had become steadily more shallow as they went down, so that even the hobbits could trudge along. Soon they all stood once more on the flat shelf at the head of the steep slope where they had felt first, where they had felt the first flakes of snow the night before. I got twisted up in my F's. Soon they all stood once more on the flat shelf at the head of the steep slope where they had felt the first flakes of snow the night before. Man, the alliteration in that sentence. The morning was now far advanced. From the high place they looked back westward over the lower lands. Far away in the tumble of country that lay at the foot of the mountain was the dell from which they had started to climb the pass. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, Burrahobbit, with both S and F. Yes, absolutely. Soon they stood on the flat shelf at the head of the steep slope where they had felt the first flakes of snow the night before. Yeah. And then, right, and then again, as soon as you notice it, Bob, right, it just jumps out at you. Um, uh, the, uh, the lower lands, right, West, back westward over the lower lands. Um, it felt the first flakes before, far advanced from the high place, far away. You, you keep getting, you know, they don't come as rapidly as they do at the end of that sentence. But once you get kind of triggered, right, uh, once your ear gets triggered on that, it's hard to miss them, especially when they're starting sentences like this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Bjorn, I mean, we're, we were thinking a little bit last week about the, well, if not purpose, the effect of the alliteration. To some extent, I really do think he can't help it. Um, I really think he can't, <laughs> I think he can't help himself. Um, I think he just does it. Um, and I'm not a hundred percent sure that he's always fully conscious of doing it. But I mean, we talked about last time how it creates certain patterns, um, how it, now he's not, it doesn't seem to me that he's here doing the thing um, that he's here doing the thing um, that he seemed to be doing in the last passage where he was coming close, at least. He was doing something that was quite like actual uh, Anglo-Saxon poetic meter. Um, I don't see Anglo-Saxon poetic meter going on here. Um, but the mere the mere mellifluousness of the prose, right, is certainly one effect. Um, the creation of sound patterns, and the thing is, it's more, it's more, um, it's much more noticeable if you read it aloud. But of course, he knew full well that the majority of people who read the book were not going to be reading it aloud. And honestly, even when you're listening to it aloud, 
you notice it when you are actually doing the reading, right? Um, but when you are not doing the reading, when you're just listening to it, I don't find that his alliteration jumps out at me all over the place. When I'm even when I'm listening to it, like when I'm listening to the audiobook recording of it, um, it is uh, most of the time it's fairly understated. Um, I felt the first flakes of snow. That that last sentence is not particularly understated, um, uh, but most of the time it is. And when he does do it, I think, so we were talking about last time the ways in which he seemed to be using, um, sort of playing on particular sounds. Remember that Tolkien, uh, Tolkien loved to think about the effect that certain sounds have on people. He loved um, that kind of, uh, the feeling of words and sounds. He loved to, he loved this in his poetry, but he loves it even in his prose to think about how to shape the sounds of words um, so as to create certain effects. Um, and I don't just mean like alliteration. That's not what I mean. I mean, he's using alliteration in order to create certain effects. Um, what sounds is he playing on here? Um, I think that sometimes I think we're, we ask the wrong question if we notice alliteration and then say, why, why, is, he, why is he employing alliteration here, right? He is employing a, a literary technique called alliteration. To what end is he employing that technique? Um, I wonder if Tolkien might say, no, I'm not employing alliteration. I'm using sounds. I'm creating sounds. I'm creating a kind of soundscape in this sentence. Because um, Lady Lakata, exactly as you say, um, he intersperses the S and the Fs. Like, look how the S's and F's are woven together. And it's not just any sounds, right? We've got the sibilant S sounds, the slightly thicker sh sound of shelf in the middle, which is like the S sound, <coughs> but again, thicker, right? And we've got the F sound, but notice also he doesn't just do the F sound on its own. He's also doing the F sound in conjunction with a liquid multiple times. FL, flat, flakes, even felt, right, has a similar kind of combination. Even first and from and far are also um, the F sound combined with a liquid sound. R's and L's are very similar in that way, right? So again, he's not only... Um, He's not, he's not just playing with Fs. He's not just playing with, with alliteration. He's not just like repeating a random, um, a random sound, right? Again, I think he's doing a kind of soundscape here. That middle paragraph. As Legolas had reported, they found that the snow became steadily more shallow as they went down. 
so that even the hobbits could trudge along. Soon they all stood once more on the flat shelf at the head of the steep slope where they had felt the first flakes of snow the night before. The morning was now far advanced. From the high place they looked back westward over the lower lands. Far away in the tumble of country that lay at the foot of the mountain was the dell from which they had started to climb the pass. Um, so the, uh, the kind of dominant colors that he's using, if you, if, if we, if we use, uh, painting as a metaphor here for a moment, right? What we have is him taking a few shades and kind of playing with those, right? The F's, the L's, the L's and R's, the S's. The S's are varied. We've got some pure sibilance, like soon, right? We've got some, we've got shallow and shelf. We also have steep and steadily. We've got the ST in a couple places, right? Um, uh, we have some other sibilance. Remember, you can't just look, when you're, when you're thinking about Tolkien's alliteration, especially when he's doing it in prose like this, right? Um, where there aren't rules, that he's following. Like when you're alliterating in poetry, normally it's, it's, it, it mixes with the poetic meter. Right. Um, but here, so like the word westwards is also a very sibilant word, right? The West words, um, both of the S's in that word are very audible, right? I mean, it also has the W sound twice, right? But, um, in some ways in the context of this of these two paragraphs, it's the S's in Westwards um, that stand out to me even more. Um, there are, of course, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not that, you know, he, he uses some other, you can't avoid using other sounds too. Like there are some, you know, T's and D's and stuff like that, but those are not really prominent, I think. Um, again, the S's, the, the S's and the S variants, the L's, the R's, the F's. Um, the morning was now far advanced. From the high place, they looked back westwards over the lower lands. Looked over the lower lands. Notice the L's there. From the high place. Place also. The P um, in place. That The L, is, again, is you get a lot of the L in the word place, right? From the high place, they looked back westwards over the, over the lower lands, far away in the tumble of country that lay at the foot of the mountain. Tumble as well. Notice how you land on the L in that one also. Far away in the tumble of country that lay at the foot of the mountain was the dell from which they had started to climb the pass. Lots and lots of L sounds in that, uh, in that paragraph. Um, yeah, yeah. Um... Yes, Bjorning, I agree with you. Um, in the tumble of country, using a verb as a noun is an amazingly efficient method of description. Yes, it really is. It really is. Um, yes, um, the, the, the tumble of country. Um, yes, Vardendil, I agree. Tumble of country is a sort of internal slant rhyme, slant rhyme that's used consistently in errantry. Yes, yes. 
Um, Notice, of course, that the tumble of country they're looking at, by the way, is the land that they were traveling through. We got a lot of description of that land on the ground when they were there, right? The tumble of country is where they were. I mean, that's Holland that they're looking at, right? Like where they were, uh, you know, hiding, um, uh, you know, from the birds before they started out, right? And yet now they're having this whole new perspective on it because they're seeing it from up above as they come back towards it. We, 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 we got a, um, you know, a description of their experience climbing up out um, of the land, but now um, their perspective is quite different as they turn back, as they turn back towards it looking down. Um, but, so, you know, I don't want to... On the one hand, I don't want to go too far in laying too much emphasis on the alliterative effects. But at the same time, I'm also not sure you can <laughs> lay too much emphasis. Where I, I mean, again, what I want to resist is that I don't think, I don't think Tolkien has some kind of like symbolic significance here. I don't think that, the, like, you know, we're supposed to be looking at you know, the exact patterns of things and stuff. Again, I would encourage you to think of it as um, more more like a kind of a soundscape. If you can train your ear to be sensitive to what is the kind of what are the dominant patterns of sound? Again, think of them it's almost like colors, right? When you're looking at a painting and and you're like just kind of feeling the blues and greens, right? You know, you get this, this cool painting with all these shades of blues and greens and purples, um, has a very different effect on you, right? Than a painting, you know, which has a lot of like orange and red and yellow, right? Um, and of course, even those things can be varied very significantly, right? And have, uh, you know, with, depending on how they're deployed. Um, and I think that Tolkien deployed sound, Similarly, it's not exactly the same, but I do think it's kind of similar. Um, and so it would be fun to sort of train our ears. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much success I would have in trying to translate into words. It's really hard to do it with paintings, isn't it? Um, I know some people are better at it than others. Um, I don't find all art historians perfectly successful in doing this. Like, I know that there's vocabulary that you can use, you know, that art historians have developed over the years uh, to talk about paintings uh, and the way in which color works and the kind of impact that that has. And that vocabulary is often helpful. Not always, I think, but often helpful. Um, but the thing is, uh, these things, things like painting and music they're part of what makes them special is that you can capture things in those media that you can't so well in words um but um so i i'm not sure we're going to be able to capture it and i don't think it's as simple as him trying now i do think we were looking when we were looking at the alliterative um shape of the paragraphs in the previous slide, um, there did see seem to be a sort of superficial similarity between the soundscape that he was building in those paragraphs and the sound of the slithering snow 
I just did it again with the sibilance, right? Um, with the sound of the slithering snow as it came down the slope. Um, those kinds of things I think are going to happen. Um, and I don't think that those are... I don't think that those are not intentional. Like, I, I, I suspect that Tolkien was thinking in that way. But at the same time, I think that we would be... I think it would be too crude merely to say that that's the effect that Tolkien is trying to... That he's just trying to emulate the sounds that they're hearing around them in the words. Sometimes I think that he's doing that. Um, uh, but I don't think that that is all that he's doing. Um, I think there's some times in which Tolkien believed... Okay. I was about to say a controversial thing. Um, there is a theory. There was a theory in Tolkien's day. Um, and people... Uh, uh, linguists and philologists will know much more about this than I do. Um, but there was a theory that there was some kind of intrinsic link between sound and meaning in different languages and as languages develop over time. There, were, there, was, a, there was a sort of a theory or belief um, that there were some patterns of connection between sounds and meaning that, um, that could be demonstrated like that there was a that there was some kind of intrinsic almost objective uh almost objective uh yeah like intrinsic meaning of certain sounds or association with certain sounds um this theory was pretty well um uh disproved like it was uh, not uh, an accepted theory um, pretty sure it had already been pretty thoroughly debunked um, uh, during in, in, in Tolkien's own time basically um, Tolkien didn't espouse it um, and I think if pushed he would say I know it isn't true but here's that controversial thing I was going to say. Um, I think he kind of in his heart believed it. Or let me say instead, he sometimes acts and talks as if he did. He didn't, officially. Um, he knew there were lots of exceptions to it, and it doesn't really fit. I, it, it, it's something, I think, more like... Um, uh, yeah, he wanted to believe it, but it's more like I think he wished it were true, basically. Um, is this crit fic? Not exactly, Bjorning. Uh, this is a conclusion I'm drawing based on things that he said and stuff when he's talking about his own languages, talking about other languages. I think it's a it's a discernible pattern. Um, I'm not speaking about his motivations for things. I'm just saying that many of the things that he said and did suggested that he did believe in some kind of connection. Or again, not that he believed that it was objectively true in the history of human languages, but almost like he thought it should be true. <laughs> if you see what I mean. Like, um, but, um, 
Yeah. Uh, Dark Water, the idea that it was somehow true in the sub-creation of Arda. Um, yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I um, It does seem to me. Did C.S. Lewis believe it? I think C.S. Lewis might have been closer to believing it, mostly because C.S. Lewis wasn't as good of a philologist as Tolkien was. Um, also, C.S. Lewis was so much readier to play fast and loose with things than Tolkien was. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but in any case, yes, Dolores Stroke, um, the stuff that we can read in History of Middle-Earth about elf language and how that developed um these are that's some of the those are some of the places where i think you can see this kind of idea uh sort of um sort of creeping in right you could almost say and i i don't know that this is a thesis i could defend um but since i'm much more like c.s lewis than tolkien i'll say it anyway um uh it seems almost to me that one of the things that Tolkien was doing in his sub-creation was building a world in which this might or could be true. Um, in a sense, um, yeah. Well, think about it like this. Um, yeah. Bjarne Sonora, I agree. It's also way more mythological to say these words mean this because of fundamental principles of the world rather than just to say, yeah, they're just arbitrary sounds. Exactly. Um, think, for instance, about Tengwar. I've been learning Tengwar recently to my great, very great delight. Thank you, Evil Dr. Cannon um, and Chad from Texas, uh, who taught me at Texmoot. And um, just even if you don't know Tengwar, um, know that in Tengwar, Tolkien created like a truly and admirably systematic alphabet, right? This is a, um, this is a script where things work and make sense. There you go. Scott's been doing some practicing. Um, I would practice reading that right now, but I'm not going to get distracted, Scott. Um, but in any case, what he built was something where, like, our alphabet, like the Latin alphabet, is this... Oh, what's that phrase, Matt? Um, the uh, arbitrary jumble of symbols. He has scathing... I'm, I'm forgetting the exact phrase uh, from Appendix E. He has uh, scathing things to say about the Latin alphabet and how nonsensical it is. Like, how it, it doesn't... It's just a, it's just a jumble right? Um, haphazard series of letters. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, there's no, there's no correlation. There's no clear correlation between the shape of the letter and the sound of the letter. There's no, uh, there, you cannot tell the relation. Like you would never even know, um, you know, that the letter F and the letter V have anything to do with each other, much less that they're practically the same sound, except one voiced and one unvoiced. They're just in two random parts of the alphabet and the shape of the letters have nothing to do with each other. Like all of these things, he's like, no, no, no. I want to invent a script made by people who thought about language, right? And for whom, um, for whom it makes sense, right? And I kind of think that in a, in a way, 
as we see him explicitly doing that with his invention of the Tengwar script, I think that um, we see him um, imagining something like that, that, that theory, that theory that there are some intrinsic, that there's intrinsic meaning to certain sounds, um, that certain sounds, um, this, Tolkien expresses this kind of belief when he says it, because he'll sometimes say things like, um, that name, like this, that name fits, you know, he'd say like the, the names for things should, like the sound of the name should fit the thing. Fit how? How does it fit? How can you tell the fit between, um, you know, between a, a, a sound and uh, between a word and a thing, right? How can you tell what's a good fit and what's a bad fit? Um, Tolkien just knows, right? He can hear it. He can feel it. Um, and I think that he did, what, just as he, in Tengwar, wanted to build a script that actually fits the sound of the, of, of, of the language, this, you know, the, the actual phonemes, um, that people's mouths, uh, make, uh, when they speak, um, I think also he did invent a world in which you can tell by the sound of something. This, I believe, is why. Why do all the El do Elrond and the other elves look pained when Gandalf utters the black speech in Rivendell? Because it's evil, right? It's it's not just like oh I'm offended at what it says. Like no, the sound of the word, like it, the sounds of the words themselves convey the evil. Um, and that's what's and that's what's happening. Um, but uh, anyway. So, this is not true in English, right? This is not true of English, either presently or historically. Um, and um, <laughs> David Michael Roberts, yes. How has no one mentioned Earthsea yet? Yes, Tolkien is not the only fantasy author who's interested in these kinds of questions uh, about the nature of language. Um, but, um, uh, anyway... So, back to the alliteration and things in these two paragraphs, which is where we began here. And this all has been coming back down around to this. I do think that it is not merely that when Tolkien is doing alliteration, he is sometimes being onomatopoetic, right? He is sometimes using onomatopoeia, namely imitating the sounds of things through the sounds of the words. Right. Um, I think that there was an onomatopoetic element. Sometimes I wish there were a simpler word than onomatopoeia for that phenomenon. But more often than not, I'm sort of delighted at the excuse to use words like onomatopoetic more frequently. Um, iconicity, yeah, that would be the technical term, right? I, <laughs> And I know you would know that's the that was the name of the theory that I was talking about. Iconicity, right, is like the concept of the iconicity of of words or the iconicity of sounds. That was the that was the thing that was the the discounted, disproven theory that Tolkien kind of in his heart wished were true or felt should be true uh, in some way. Um, in any case, um, 
Uh, Tolkien does not just use, I think, his, the alliterative effects in his prose onomatopoetically. Um, I think that he is also using them to invoke things, right? Again, like a painter chooses a particular color palette for a particular illustration in a particular description to convey a particular mood, I think, even. Um, he will um, invoke, he will, I think that really does shape for help him to shape uh, his, the sounds of his prose, uh, the dominant patterns of sound that he brings out of his prose um, in order to create certain effects. And I don't know um, I don't know what exactly those effects are. I'm not sure I can put it into words. Um, and I find that it's very tempting to begin thinking um, uh, it's very tempting to begin thinking onomatopoetically as soon as you do. Right. Um, but, um, but again, I think it goes, I think it goes beyond that. Um, yes, words were his notes and his colors. That's exactly right, Maureen. Um, and yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see if, what kinds of patterns we can see. This is just something to, um, uh, this is just something to consider as we go forward. Oh, Nancy. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to get away with skipping any of the appendices in the book. Um, but we'll see. Um, I can't wait for the chapter of my book on uh, the genealogies on appendix. What is it? Isn't that D? I think that's D. Or is it C? I forget. Wait, is... Which one is the calendars and which one? <laughs> I can't remember. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyhow. Um, by the way, can I just add the discussions that we've been having about the alliterative patterns in Tolkien's prose in the last two weeks? has really opened... I've never really thought about this much before. I mean, I, there have been times when... I mean, that Tolkien loves to use alliteration is something I've often noticed. Um, but I tend to notice it... Um, yeah, I've tended to notice it at the moments when it jumps out most. Right? Things like, fly, you fools! And, <laughs> and things like that. Um, but... Um, uh, but even just, I, but that the patterns are so deeply, in, are so deeply woven into simple prose descriptions like this is really um, something that uh, has I've never really noticed to the extent that we have in the last couple of weeks. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, I agree. Likely a bot um, and Bjorning. Uh, there are, um, I do think, that these kinds of effects are for, for people who 
are in any way are like to any extent attuned to it. Um, and it, it, I think is usually quite subconscious. Um, uh, but I, I do think that it is one of the things that gives a kind of depth to it. There might be a passage that just kind of, I don't know what, lingers with you. Just It, it just it affects you differently. Um, if you're in any way sensitive to sounds. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that I now really want to do... Um, yeah. One of the things that I that I that I really want to do is um, look at the patterns that you can see between his first drafts in like Return of the Shadow and Treason of Isengard and his later to see is this effect is this something that just happened like as he was composing prose did he just think this way automatically and that seems to me very possible. I mean, you'll notice I saw this with several of you and I did it myself a couple times. Several of us during this discussion found ourselves spontaneously alliterating, right? Um, and that happens, right? I, I, I do believe, I do believe that it is possible that Tolkien could write even a sentence like soon they all stood once more, like that, that last sentence of the second paragraph. I think that Tolkien could totally write a sentence like that without sitting there, you know, scratching his head, thinking about, I need another F, right? No, 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 I need to revise this and get more FL sounds in there, right? I, I, I'm not saying it would have been bad had he done that, but I'm saying I can easily imagine him not doing that. Um... I think that it could very likely emerge almost spontaneously. So I'd not be shocked to see things like this happening, even in the very first drafts that he was writing. But I would be very interested to see if in his revisions, these effects were being augmented in any kind of uh, uh, systematic way. It's a, it's a question... It's a question I've never asked before. It's a question I'm not aware anyone has asked before. It would be really interesting, wouldn't it? Um, how many alliterative passages like this have we missed already in the previous chapters? Bob, don't even think I haven't been thinking about that, right? How many times, how many times in exploring the Lord of the Rings have we been like, well, unfortunately, we have to go back and start again now because there's this whole other thing that we've been missing this whole time. Exactly, Nancy. It's time to go back and start again. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah. Um, so, Evil Dr. Cannon, I'm afraid what, what this means is we have to slow down further. We're going recklessly fast, right? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but <laughs> anyway, well... We'll, we'll, we'll keep moving forwards. But this would be... What a fascinating study this would be, wouldn't it? You could do a whole thing. You could do... You could do a whole color-coded 
version of the text, right? I, I'm imagining an electronic text of the Lord of the Rings highlighted in colors that are keyed to particular sound patterns, right? So that we could see where he's using some of those same notes to see what patterns emerged. If we could find, I need to get, I need to get, um, you get James Tauber on this. Hey, <clears throat> calling the digital Tolkien project. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, colors key to particular patterns. It's exactly it. Gold Oliver. It's precisely what, what we need. Um, yes, yes. Um, because it would be interesting to see if we could see, if we could begin, to, I think that seems to me the only way we could sort of begin to put our fingers on what, what is the sense? What is the meaning he was invoking here? What's the, what's the mood? Just as again, if you, if you look at one painting, right? One painting with like lots of blue, green, and purple shades might affect you in one way, might affect you in another way. But when you're looking, you know, if you look at a whole bunch of them, right? Uh, I'm just thinking of a wonderful day that um, my wife and I spent in the uh, Museum of Art down in Boston recently. Um, uh, and it was just a, such a, just a long day of just sort of feasting on uh, the paintings, um, just sort of taking them in all day long and um, spend almost the whole day on paintings. And um, the patterns you begin to see, right? This, it's like you can begin almost to feel, it's hard to articulate, but you can sort of feel the, um, the vocabulary, right? It begins to sort of take shape. It's like you begin visually to sort of speak the language in some way, especially when you're looking at uh, particular groups of artists or, or one particular artist, you know, many paintings where um, I spent, oh goodness, probably an hour and a half with John Singer Sargent down there. Um, uh, who's one of my wife's favorite uh, artists. And um, anyway, there are uh, so many things that I think are just fascinating there. Um, but... I think we could do a similar thing um, if only we could perceive the patterns. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, this is especially interesting to me because Tolkien was a painter and I've often felt that many of his descriptions he is trying to capture in words what he would have tried to capture with paint if he had been painting instead. Um, and we see a few occasions in which he does both, right? In which he actually has represented in paint what he represented elsewhere um, in words. And I... So when you take his... the Sort of the three things that Tolkien loved, right? Well, three, three, three of the things that Tolkien loved. Um, painting, 
the sound of words, right? This sort of the sound and the meaning of words and storytelling and look at the ways in which all of those things kind of come together. Um, really, really interesting stuff. Um, so anyhow, I'm, I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm just like my own brain is racing with, uh, this is me grappling with, uh, I just, my mind racing on how to do this, on what we might see, on what we could discover if we did this. Oh man. What a fun line of, gotta get some, hey, some visual art people into this conversation, some music people into this conversation. Bit of a whole moot where we talked about this, but um, yeah, yeah, some rappers too. Rappers who do more with the interplay, the intricate interplay of the sounds of English than anybody I know. Um, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Wobe. Wreck him. One of the greats. Absolutely. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so. Sorry. Yeah. No, I have to tear myself free of this or else it will get too big. And I don't have time to do any of it anyway. But that's the fun thing about doing this together as a community. Um is that I can see things like this that would be incredibly fun to study, but which I know I don't really have time to study. Um, I'm not going to be able to do that. Um, but, but, um, but fortunately, there's all of you listening. Um, there's all of you listening who can make it happen um anyway yeah okay no this is me stopping thinking about this but it is such a uh it is such a rich field of inquiry <laughs> Did I just Tom Sawyer you? No, 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 no. No, that's a, that's quite different. I do that all the time, but th this is quite different. It's just quite different. Um, it's a quite different. Um, this is uh, this is merely my observing that this inquiry should happen, and an acknowledgement that I can't do it. Not that I wouldn't love to be involved in some way, but I can't do it. But it should be done. You know, it'd be fun. We could do a whole. We could do a moot project on this. 
See, I've often thought, um, you know, with all the different moots we do, I've often thought, wouldn't it be fun um, instead of only listening to presentations and things, which we don't, we often do other things as well at moots, but wouldn't it be fun to actually produce something at a moot, right? To like do some work. We do also reenact stuff, yeah. But like, yeah, to, to, to do a project like this together. Like, let's go through and find some of these answers and, like, figure stuff out. Like, we could actually, you know, with a, a, a big group of people and a day, we could, we, we could do some things. We could do some things. We could, uh, we could have a few groups looking at patterns in the Fellowship of the Ring, right? We could take some, like, decent swaths of text and um, and we could pattern that. We could have some other people doing comparisons. Oh, yeah. Totally could happen. Totally could happen. Um, is the Myth Moot schedule finalized? Close enough. Believe me, I'm not going to bring this up. <laughs> this is the kind of thing, like, if I were to go in May to the myth moot planning thing and say, I've got this big idea for a huge thing we can do. I have to duck when I say that um, at this time of year. <laughs> but anyway, um, um, Bjorning, we could make it double blind. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Anyway, yeah. Um, um, yep. No, this would be fun. Okay. Anyway. No problem. No problem. Okay. That was awesome. Well, I think we're almost done with this slide. No, let's get back to the first paragraph, which we skipped. Here I am. I'm going back to the text. I'm going to stop thinking about this now. Totally going to stop thinking about this now. What a cool project, though. We'll keep looking at it as we go along. Um... We were peeking ahead to look at Gimli's remarks. The narrator's voice in the first paragraph there suggests um, suggests that um, the narrator that Gimli believes and the narrator believes. So we're looking at Gimli's things. We're talking about what does Karathras want, right? What does Karathras seem to be suggesting? Gimli's interpretation is that the, the, the message that Gimli is receiving from the mountain uh, is we are departing as quickly as we may. Right? He's like, get out. And he's like, okay, we're going. We're going. Stay off. Right? Um, and the narrator seems to agree. And indeed, with that last stroke, the malice of the mountain seemed to be expended, as if Karathras was satisfied that the invaders had been beaten off and would not dare to return. Um, by the way, I really love... Um, uh, I really love um, the... Almost every... Almost every clause in The Lord of the Rings that begins with the phrase, as if is really fun. Um, I love Tolkien's as-if clauses. So notice 
by couching this as an as-if clause, he is not asserting that this is true. He's not telling us that, in fact, Carothros was satisfied um, that the invaders had been beaten off and would not dare to return. He doesn't tell us either that that information that the invaders have been beaten off and would not dare to return has been communicated to Carothros, nor has he saying is he saying necessarily that Carothros is responding with pleasure to this. Um, but it's as if that is the case, right? Tolkien does this a lot, and it's a lot of fun when he does this, right? He suggests without actually asserting. Remember that throughout this passage, there has been this, this kind of diffidence. Gimli is 100% convinced, right? Gimli knows that Carothras is alive and that Carothras is doing this. Others, such as Aragorn, have, you know, left that open, but not you know, they've neither confirmed nor denied, right? Remember, Aragorn did his I can neither confirm nor deny statement when he was like, I do call it the wind, but that does not make what you say untrue, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, this is... Um, uh, the narrator is putting us in a similar kind of place. But the as-if statement... Um, the as-if statement, by the way, it's kind of like... It's not the same thing, but it's kind of like when Tolkien um, uses phrases like, it is said that, right? Phrases like that, um, as if, or it is as if, or, um, you know, uh, it is said that, or some have said that, or it has been sung that. Um, these are all things that sort of, um, they provide a certain amount of deniability, Right, like you don't, you don't, have, you don't have to believe it. The text isn't asking you to believe this. Um, it leaves us in this sense of uncertainty, but it seems to me, um, uh, it seems to me, um, I don't know. It seems to me a pleasurable kind of uncertainty, or a pleasurable degree of uncertainty. Right, it maintains. A level of mystery while openly inviting us to imagine these things. Um, and I, Tolkien does that a lot. Um, there are times when he is asking us to believe particular things, right? Extraordinary things. Um, but this is why, you know, there are some people who think there's not really much magic or any magic in Middle-earth. I've seen people maintain that scholars maintain that there, there isn't really any actual magic in Middle-earth. Um, in my opinion, that's going well too far. But the mere fact that that discussion can be had, I think, is a tribute to this inclination that Tolkien had of leaving things kind of open, right? Um, he invites us to... He invites us into secondary belief in the narrative. And he doesn't... There's this, like, further invitation, right, to believe that, like, to believe that 
there is a spirit in this mountain. Now, again, there's on one level, there's little reason to disbelieve it, right? I There doesn't seem anything... I don't see, like, looking at the patterns in the text, the other things that we have seen, we've done a lot of comparison to Old Man Willow, as he's a pretty, um, for several reasons, uh, uh, I think a, a, a reasonably good uh, comp for Karathras here, but, um, uh, but there, I mean, even Goldberry and Tom Bombadil themselves, uh, you know, might sort of make us think in this direction. There are lots of reasons to, uh, to th- I mean, it's, Karathras fits in a lot of ways. And yet, um, Tolkien doesn't force us to believe it, right? Um, he leaves it there for our imagination um, to take or to leave, really. Um, yeah, likely about... Uh, I assume the very wise avoid making uh, definite statements, especially about the motivations of mountains. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think as you're implying, likely a bot, I think it's, it is quite possible that this might be one of the reasons why the elves say both no and yes. Right? Um, maybe because clear and definitive answers are not quite as simple, <laughs> right, as that. Um, uh, and not just because, of course, like uh, advice is a dangerous gift, even from the wise to the wise, as Gildor says in that same conversation. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, April, the question about Mount Doom is a really great question. Yeah. Um, Mount Doom. Uh you could ask a chicken and egg question about Mount Doom, couldn't you? Um, it is the center of Sauron's power on Earth. Is it the way that it is because it is the center of it? Sauron made it the center of his power on Middle Earth, or did he make it the center of his power on Middle Earth because it is what it is, right? Um, did um, you know? Did he meet the mountain first and and? Uh, get a sense that uh, he could have a constructive working relationship with this mountain, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Yeah. But I think we have been given plenty to believe. I mean, like, if someone asks me straight up, do you think that there is like a, a uh, you know, a, a sentient spirit that animates Karathras? Um, is there actually a sentient being that is attempting, you know, to kill them or thwart them in the past of Karathras? I would say yes. I would say yes. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. I think there's plenty of evidence to say it. Gimli certainly, Gimli obviously thinks it, right? And neither Gandalf nor Aragorn contradict it, right? Um, and definitely remain open to it. But they also don't confirm it either. And the narrator doesn't exactly confirm it. Um, <laughs> JJ says, follow-up question, is it Saruman? Uh, no. No, no, it is, uh, it, it is not, in fact, Saruman. Um, I still think that was the loudest I laughed the first time I saw. The hardest and loudest I laughed when I first saw that movie. But anyway, um, 
uh, yeah. Um, whether you believe it or not. So notice how he turns from the as if statement to then an unqualified, um, with no further context other than the as if statement he's just made, a simple statement of external fact. As if Karathras was satisfied that the invaders had been beaten off and would not dare to return. The threat of snow lifted, the clouds began to break, and the light grew broader. That's just what happened, right? Um, it is up to you, gentle reader, uh, to decide whether that was... It, that might have been happening anyway, right? I mean, it's... That's a meteorological phenomenon that does, in fact, occur, right? Um, there are all manner of things that could explain that, or maybe it, maybe it doesn't need explanation. It's, it's fine, right? Um, but if you are willing to follow the narrator's implication and Gimli's open statement, then you will find them heartily confirmed by that mere and un, uh, you know, uh, unbiased sort of statement of fact right there in the last sentence of the, of the, of the paragraph. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Now I'm trying to I'm trying to avoid the sound stuff. Um, they're looking back westwards from the high place over the lower lands, um, and they see the dell from which they started to climb the pass. Right, this is um, on the one hand. There's I think a really fascinating turn that that last paragraph takes, right? Um, the first thing, um, first we're just getting the relief, right? The, the relief that is pointed to in that last sentence of the first paragraph on this slide, right? The threat of the snow of snow lifted, the clouds began to break and the light grew broader. Wonderful, right? How excellent. And you think of the way in which as... Um, uh, somebody was just saying, um, yeah, Aspen, um, uh, was just saying that, um, you know, the, the, the broadness, the word broader, which is a slightly unusual word to use to describe light. The light grew brighter, we might expect, right? The light grew, I don't, you know, but broad is not a very common adjective used to modify the noun light, right? Um, I'm saying it's unknown, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not the usual one. Um, and Aspen is pointing out, I think quite rightly, that um, remember how limited and enclosed their world was. Not only how they were fetched up, you know, huddled up against the cliff face, uh, which was kind of leaning over them, right? And then the snow piling up around them until the hobbits literally couldn't see more than a couple feet away, right? Because they couldn't even see over the top of the snow uh, as it was drifted up around them. Um, 
so yeah, the whole world was kind of closing in and constricting around them, like, you know, some kind of, you know, constrictor snake, right? Um, like the, 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 you know, choking off uh, their life and heat and light and hope uh, last night. And so this idea of the light growing broader and them now being out to look the whole far away in the tumble of country. From a high place, they looked back westwards over the lower lands. Um, now they have this whole big vista. They can see all of the lands that they've been going through, right? They're looking back over this, everything that they've been, they've been kind of crawling around through. The They can see where they, um, you know, were shivering in the east wind that we looked at before and, and you know, the country from which they first caught a sight of this mountain, right? The red horn uh, with the light of the setting sun on it. Um, and um, now, so yeah, so things are, so on the one hand, exactly as Aspen was suggesting, we have this great um, opening out of things and the marvelous feeling of relief that goes along with that. Um, uh, Piretta, uh, so glad you could join us too, by the way. Um, I like that. Uh, Piretta Blaze Feonato says, uh, the contrast between the light growing broader and the snow more shallow uh, paints a vivid picture. Yes, exactly. Um, that um, it's almost like the morning after getting out of the barrow, right? Um, where they were returned as if from death to life. And remember the colors and the green grass, running naked over the green grass, right? Um, as that, that not officially endorsed therapeutic method. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, I, that, so much there, you know, we, we got the, a lot of that was tactile, right? The, the release from the barrow. Um, here, it's, it's very, it's very visual, right? Um, yes, uh, Sonar, I agree. It, it is as if the malevolent spirit's influence has been rolled back. Yes, it is. Um, but notice the final turn that we get at the end of that paragraph. Like all of this, you know, the relief, the escape, the opening of the world, right? The, the, the seeing of the land that you never thought you would see again. And then they're like they see the dell from which they started to climb the pass remember the dell in which there they had been debating whether they should climb the pass or not right in which the dell in which they had been sleeping when everyone else was sleeping uh when frodo overheard the conversation between gandalf and uh and aragorn right and in which they had the discussion the next day about what they were going to do and, you know, where Boromir suggested they get firewood, right? And uh, all that stuff. So it's the thing of the Delder firewood came from and, and, and such. Um, in other words, in the midst of this, of the relief, of their release from the mountain, in the middle of all that, we get the reminder that they're just going backwards, Right? They've, they've made no progress. This whole dangerous, almost deadly couple days that they spent has been for nothing. They accomplished nothing. They accomplished less than nothing. 
they are now far more in danger than they were before. And that is going to be the final note that we're going to see in the last slide of chapter three. And with that uh, little cliffhanger leading to the final slide of the chapter, we will end for tonight. Um, <laughs> Abelard, I agree, they blew all their Miravore. Well, not all of it. They still have a little bit left. But yeah, exactly. Um, yep, yep. Um, <laughs> Barry here wants to know how many how many weeks we've spent talking about their wasted time. Yeah, now I'd like to think that our time wasn't wasted looking at their at their wasted time, but um, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> right. Our, our, our reward was the alliterations they made along the way. Silk Westcott. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. Okay. So we will see next time. Next time. Uh, we will look at the the final reflections on what this as basically as as the the, the final paragraphs will pick up that last sentence um, that last note of frustration and uh, futility that we see there at the end all right um, we're gonna go to our field trip now. Thanks, everybody uh, who could only join us for book discussion tonight. Really awesome discussion tonight. I've got a new huge scholarly project that I am not going to do, uh, but um, but I'm also not going to forget it. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens there. But um, anyway, uh, thanks. Thanks for joining me tonight. Getting ready for uh, for our field trip here. How are you, Valori, this evening? I'm doing all right. Yourself, sir? I'm excellent. I'm excellent. Any uh, day, I was thinking, like, if the schedule is completely booked up, we always have the room of requirement. We can just grab a big pad of That's paper true. and work in there. That's true. Yeah, we can. We can have an ongoing project in the room of requirement uh, at MythMoot. You're so right. Like, Yeah, just like when we did the, the, the Rickroll translation. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That would be cool. Mm -hmm. Looking forward to it. Yeah. All right, coming back in here. Almost there. Yep. No, as I was saying, any day in which, um, you know, you... Uh, think of a huge, fascinating, possibly groundbreaking scholarly project that you can't possibly do. It's got to be a good day. Oh, yeah. All right. So today, I think we are headed out. So we're going to go back to uh, use the same milestone uh, back to uh, Sierland and Cardolan. Mm -hmm. And we're today going to be headed out to uh, a new new part of Cardo. We're going to head out to, towards the South Downs. All right. That's it. So we've explored, I think, almost everything to the west of the river here. 
Uh, everything mm -hmm. except the final approach to Tharbad, because we're, we're gonna, I'm saving Tharbad for the end. Um, <laughs> but apart from that, we've we've done everything over there, and now we're gonna head over, and, and we we went up toward to the connection to the Lone Lands last time. And now we're gonna head into the South Downs proper. Yes, is the plan. And we so found out where it linked up with Lone Lands last time. Yes, exactly. If I remember correctly, we get on this way. No, no, this is the pool. Hang on, I'm pointing the wrong way. Okay, there we go. This way. This is the way we go. Whoops. Yeah. Hang on, losing my place. There we go. I'm all over the place. All right. Okay, so right. we head out back down the road. It really wants me to do those that crumbled towers quest, which I've been resisting for weeks now. But I, I think this may be the last time we have to resist it. Okay, so we came out to this road and took a left and headed up towards the North Downs last time. Mm-hmm. This time, we're going to take a little jog south. Now, this southward road here just goes down to... Okay, hang on. This, let's just... This showing take a minute. I'm sure. He says confidently. Because I'm sure we won't find like any new ruins down in this direction or anything, but let's just right. let's just connect the dots because there's a stre this stretch of road we're not going to have much excuse to go on later on. That's definitely a cave up there, though. Oh dear. <laughs> well, hey, tell you what, actually, let's not go this way. Um, it is a silly place. No, um, <laughs> let's um, let's let's because I forgot we are going to come back this way when we head down to Tharbad eventually. Oh yes. So let me, let's not get distracted. Let's head up into the South Downs. Yes. Okay, so this is the South Downs, which seems to correspond to the North Downs, right? Yes. The farmlands and uh, fields attached debris. Yeah. And so that's kind of interesting because, of course, the North Downs is was like the the center of the power of Arthodyne back in the old mm -hmm. days. Yes. Um, so this really does help to solidify the idea. Now that is a very castle-y looking construction up on the hill up there. Yeah, wow, that one tower is going to fall over any day now. Yeah, that does not look safe. That is um, fighting gravity. A windmill? Ooh. Okay, that's not what I was expecting. A non-hobbit um, Windmill. Yeah. Oh, let's go and see. This is the that farm that we saw on the on the map, I believe. Yeah. Um. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll put a star on him. Oh yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I know. Yes, but who there. shall star the professor? <laughs> Okay, so old, but not very old, stone walls. Uh-oh. Oh, the farm is on fire. That's not good. It's going to make the architecture much harder to appreciate. Well, not really. The buildings aren't on fire, just the fields. So that It's just a little smoking. It's still good. It's still good. Yeah. What is this random fire burning in the middle of the dirt here? These goblins are just like standing around. Bloom, I'm gonna bloom. assume that was a goblin that just caught on fire and just walked over here. Oh, I see. Blogmall Defender. 
Logmall sounds familiar. I think that I think we've encountered Log-mall. this tribe before. So it's a, yeah. Um, that's odd. Is it really a spontaneous combustion when he's like setting the fire? <laughs> right. It might not be. It might not be. Um, oh, those are the ones in Fornost. Okay, Ron. Thank you. Yes, thank you. So they're in the North Downs and the South Downs. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the first thing that interests me is this pile of stones. Doesn't this pile of stones look just like the piles of stones that we thought might be, um, like, deliberately piled stones along the road? Uh, I, this I don't think is. I, like, basically, no. this... This pile of stones, see, like the the bit that I'm right on here, mm-hmm. is like the what looked like built columns or cairns along the road, which I'm now doubting were at all. In fact, yeah, this is more likely the result of erosion. Just different sections of uh, if it's a sedimentary rock, different layers are going to have. Uh, different strength depending yeah. on its consistency yeah. and how hard it's packed down so different layers will wear away faster than other layers which gives you this nice little pancake stack yeah yep yeah the pancake stack is exactly what we were seeing so that's interesting all the cows yeah all the dead cows boo yeah but they didn't burn the barn and the barn is interesting as its architectural style is quite different from that of Brie. We don't Looks see barns like this almost. in Brie. It does. It's the got, shape of it's it. Got that, it's the boat structure. Like it's yes, exactly. The bowed roof, right? It's the, the sort of mm-hmm. the, yeah, yeah. That's exactly, I was, I mean, it, you know, from a distance, like in the dark, like the, the silhouette is almost, is almost mead hallish, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't look yeah. at all like uh, Bree structures or even the Forsaken Inn. No, it doesn't. Nor even like Herna, which looked a great deal like Bree. Oh, yeah. Right? What about the um, Wildwood? Yeah, it Sorry? does look like stuff that we've seen in the Wildwood almost. In the Wildwood, but yes. Not, yes. More that one's like more, that. That one, I think that was more stone just simply because of what was available. Yes, and also... This is planar, both this and like the uh, the little stable over here. Mm-hmm. We've got the same but, wooden sides and sort of slate shingles, but mm-hmm. well, the living quarters and the stables look Breland. Right. Well, hang on, I'm gonna go over to the house. Yeah, that one definitely looks like a farmhouse we've seen in Bree. Yeah, I mean, it's still stone rather than any of the, you know, the like more sort of Tudor buildings that we normally associate yes. with it. But but there are what cottages. Use- um, yeah. What's his name? What, what, what's the name of the the Bree Ranger with the cottage? Is it Saros? Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Saradon. Saradon. Yeah, it's Saradon. Saradon is the one I was thinking of. Saradon. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Oh, we got those nasty totem poles again. Yeah, with that really disappointing banner. Which yeah, just looks that, like that, they found that in. Chewed it up and dragged it behind the horse. Um, yeah. 
that's a made by the lowest bidder banner. Yeah. Though the tusks hanging from it are interesting. Those are presumably boar tusks from the boars that we can see around here. Um, yeah, I, fancy I don't think there's any aurochs around here. Well, those would be little bitty aurochs horns. Anyway. Um, Can't tell from this height. Yeah. And these are horns taken from victims, possibly? Oh. Haven't seen that before. Weird. Rally horns. Who uses those? They're all practically identical. Yeah. And five different horns of this kind? Who does use those horns? I mean, I would think that they would be horns taken from victims because they don't look goblin make. And they're on sort of pointy spikes as if they could yeah, be heads. I, exactly. The way that they're nailed to the... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the trophies. <laughs> These are trophies. Very much displayed um, like trophies. Do rangers have horns like this, maybe? Or maybe it's just we're supposed to assume it's one in, one of the champion players. Perhaps. Perhaps. Um, I believe. So captains? May, no, it's captains. Captains can have horns. They, that's what they do to rally the troops. Yeah. Sorry, I only have the one captain character that's on a different server, so I don't play him. I've never... Captain is one of the... Uh, one of the... Classes I've never played ever. It's really fun if you want to read and play at the same time. Ah. Because it's, hey, imagine. you, go kill all those things. <laughs> right, sir? <laughs> yeah, I find Lore Master kind of uh, relaxing that way, too, although I suppose captains are probably not as squishy. Uh, they, they make an equal amount of noise, though. Mm-hmm. Um, Katriana, yes, the Aglion are those people in the Lone Lands. Yes, and it's possible that they use horns of that sort. Yeah, there are. Uh, it's one of those things where we're we're still kind of on the fence as to whether the Igline are like the people who live in the Lone Lands or if they're just passing through from somewhere else. So. Right. Right. Yeah, I do a, feel extremely right. callous just standing around while these people's crops burn, but um, not much we can do about it. There really doesn't seem much that I can do apart from admire the architecture of the uh, people that have apparently been driven out of this farm if we hope for the best. I do kind I mean, of like yeah. the fact that this little crate is on fire at the top. That's that's kind of cute. I've set fire to the crate. Anyway, um... Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the haystack isn't on fire, but that crate is, so... Fire is um, a funny thing like that. It is. All right, well, let's look. There's another farm over, um, and the other, the next farm over uh, has thing over a here. Oh, it's master. a buddy. It's a, it's an orc corpse. Huh. What's in these? Are those hams? I think those are hams. So these hmm? are presumably the supplies from the farm that they've been pillaging, right? Yeah. Uh, no, no. This is goblin supplies. Those are like uh, 
eels and yeah, these are like the growth supplies that the orcs have in there. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, from Grubhub. Yeah, yeah, like eels Literal and grubs. grubs and awful moldy cheese. Oh, uh, yeah. the moldy cheese is a great detail there. Right, the snakes on a stick. Exactly. Yeah, that's just what they do. Okay, so let's head up to the next farm <laughs> and see what we see there as far as... Of course, I'm thinking not in terms of the uh, modern quest lines, but of the uh, sort of regional history. Because mm -hmm. just the evidence that we've already seen for the cultural difference between the folks who lived and presumably have for some time lived here in the South mm -hmm. Downs and even just back across the river in Herne is really interesting. Whoa, look at the monolith. Yeah. We got some big old ruins in this direction. <laughs> that looks like probably Amon Fern that we're seeing in the distance there, I think. Huh. I'm looking yeah. at the map. And this thing is not even... Is that maybe how the near Nirnui up there? Tell you what, though. Let's be prudent. Let's go to the farm, and then let's explore ruins next time. Okay. Because it's starting to get late, and the farm has a stable master, and maybe oh, even yes, a milestone. Yes, yes. So let's see. Wow. Okay. Not looking Skrlock. at the ruins. Skurlock Farm. That's a good old English name. Greetings, friend. Okay. Look at that. We've gotten all the stable masters except for Tharbad. Is there a milestone here? Yes. Um... There is. Oh, huzzah. Perfect. This will be the perfect milestone. Oh, what a nice summer. view in this farm. Yeah. If you really wanted a view of all the ruins round about, this is the place to be. Oh, man, yeah. Wake up and look at those ruins out of your bedroom window. Yeah. Really nifty. Mm-hmm. Okay, so hang on. So I'm, not, I'm looking at... Oh, that's probably... What? Nymarth? That I'm seeing down in the south over there? Oh, okay. look at the wispy clouds everywhere, too. You're right. The sky is quite lovely. I should appreciate the fact that... Uh, we've gotten to do this in daylight, which is so often not the case. Mm-hmm. Okay. That Excellent. angel hair cloud, that means you're going to get a storm in a day or two. <laughs> yeah, usually when it's very beautiful, it means something horrible is about to happen. Um, um, <laughs> no, it just means it's going to rain next time we're out here. Right. So good thing we got to see this beautiful uh, uh, su sunset with the runes there, painting everything pink and orange. Huh. So the last farm was on fire with goblins standing around in it, and this one is... 
still nice and beautiful with just like disapproving women folks sitting there scowling at us. They look really unhappy. You then. <laughs> and this kid standing there. Notice that child, even to the style of the clothing, looks like a Rohiric mm. child. It sure does. The haircut, the clothing, mm -hmm. that like tunic and skirt combination there. Yep. With the undersleeves, really looks like a Rohiric child. Also, what did this guy Kendrew do to not be allowed to sit on the bench? No, he is clearly like he can't even get to the doghouse. I don't even know. Where yeah, no, Bethan's like, nah, you can't sit here. I need this bench, like exactly. all of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I'm sitting here. This is here. me. When I, this I is me on the couch. There. Nope. No, nope. I wanted to sit there. Too. I'm sitting there too. Yep. I'm sitting everywhere. Nope, sitting on the ground now. <laughs> yep. There is some kind of unrest going on here. What did you do, Kendrew? Okay, so this, architecturally speaking, the stable looks just like the other. Now, notice that this house does have the beam and plaster sides. Yes. More like Brie and Herna. Mm -hmm. This seems to have more influence. Even the even the doors. Uh, it looks very much like the, the, the hunting lodge in Brie. Yeah. Well, the configuration certainly suggests that, doesn't it? Oh, and the, little... the little round little round pane glasses to the, in the mm -hmm. windows. Oh, right. In, oh, in, the, in the bow window over there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Those little Coke bottle tiles. Right, right. Yes, as opposed to the, the uh, you know, the, di the sort of diamond lattice work that we get in the upper story mm -hmm. windows there. Oh, eggplants. Yeah. They're growing eggplants over here. Okay. And string beans and... The healers um, are work at something over here. Um, we've got bees. No, they're, they're thriving Boy. here. Yeah, no, this place is... Uh-oh. I'm covered in bees! <laughs> oh, yeah, that is kind of a modern-looking plow there. With the, the double edge blade. They have a plow? Um, right here. Well, wait, where? Oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not your single blade, though. It's your uh, bifurcated cow catcher blade. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, really wide furrows. You'd yeah, they're living the best life. Yeah, what are you planting? Elephants? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, yep, yeah, they're barn looks similar. Oh, they got the furry cows. Okay, so I'm th here's here's here, here's what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Their barn and their other like stable or whatever the other smaller shed over there is mm -hmm. are exactly the same as uh, the other farm. It's the farm mm -hmm. that is on fire. <laughs> Um, and, but the, the house, 
The house is the difference. The other house looked older with all of the old the, the old stone construction. And yeah. this does look like it has more of a Brie influence. Yep. So I think it's possible that this house, the other house, could have been easily 500 years old. Hmm. Conceivably. I'm not saying it definitely is. But, like, if somebody told me that other house is 500 years old, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, it, you know, old stone structures like that. In a place like this that's been around forever. Mm-hmm. You can totally, you can totally imagine that. Here, I'm thinking... Almost certainly both of these farms are in the third epoch of Cardolan, that is after the fall of Cardolan. Of Mo- yeah. So you've got the, um, you know, they're surrounded by ruins. I mean, just glancing over at that ruin right nearby there, I would think that, that from here, from this distance, that looks like it would be old Arnor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that these two farms are both old. I think the other farm's a little older. At least this house has been probably rebuilt. But rebuilt, this is this is where the difference in the architectural style of the house interests me because it seems to have more of a Brie slash Herna in, in, influence, right? And oh, if yeah. Herna is, as I was thinking, a kind of southern Brie colony, right? People spreading out and moving south from Brie. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if Herna was kind of an old satellite of Brie after the fall of Cardolan again, so you've got the whole, the whole Cardolan thing has, is is done. The Arnorian yeah. civil wars are over. Cardolan is lost, and this is now empty country. And they come down and build Herna um, right next to the road, right next to the Greenway, as a convenient way of getting back up towards Brie and communicating and trading there potentially. Um, these would be more outlying farms. But this is the one that shows this sort of more recent kind of architecture. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it looks fairly new. The only thing we got are the, the mossy stone, which might have been old foundation. Right. And the plaster showing some wear and tear, but everything else looks brand spanking new. Yeah. Not even yeah. the windows are dirty. Right. That's certainly true. I mean, the barn doesn't exactly look brand new. I mean, this looks like it could have been there for some time. But when I say huge. some time, we're t- it's, it is huge. It is huge. It's a community center. We're huge, yeah. Yeah, I know it's true. Um, How bad winters do they get out here? Yeah. No, it's a big farm and, you know, very sort of self-sustaining. Got the orchards and the bees and the garden and the fields and the livestock that they don't have many cows here mm-hmm. hey we got a pulley system with a chain on it <laughs> I don't we've think seen we've seen the pulley one with a chain before, before but yeah yeah. Well, the cows are behind the barn yeah well the barn is certainly big enough for as many cows as you like um, anyway yeah so I would think that these would have been sort of 
that these farms would have been by ad, built by adventurous people probably after Herna was built. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, we got sheep too. Look at this. Oh, and big casks? Oh, I bet half of that barn is just for holding casks and stuff. I think it's just where they keep the this just where they keep the beer. And then, yeah, maybe. And the and the the brewing the the copper tubs and everything. Yeah. Yeah, possibly. Makes, makes sense. Possibly. Um, so they got they got short hair cows and long hair cows. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think these would be like adventurous homesteading farmers who spread out into the now totally abandoned countryside. Mm-hmm. Which seems relatively lush, though rocky and rough. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, I agree, Rowan. They would. Have, they, it looks like they have both beef and dairy ca- uh, cattle. Mm-hmm. Most likely. Um, yeah, I don't think these uh, these two particular cows probably have very long life expectancy, but yes. Um, yeah. And it's interesting, sort of quasi-symbolically, how this big old still-thriving farm is now sort of nestled in this little dell with all of the ruins of old Arnor and old Cardolan all around it, visible on mm-hmm. every side, right? Um, is, yeah, sort of, they probably keep away because it's either haunted or just no good stone over there. Yeah, well, it's just like they're cradled and protected. I mean, it shows you also the difference in priorities, right? They're not exactly oh, yeah. low down. I mean, they're they're fairly high up, as we saw from when we climbed up here. And also, given how far around we can see. But these are downs, right? That's what you would expect um, mm-hmm. to be able to see far from on top of a down. Um, but they're not... This is... Although you've got a some pretty good views and we're not like very low you can see how it's at a relative low nobody would have built a fortress here because you're on low ground compared to all the surrounding areas that's Mm -hmm. I suspect part of why the ruins are all up on the heights and they're down here in the valley again the point is the point that I'm making is you can see the difference in sort of the overall culture of the region, right? To them, this is just abandoned land. There's no threat here. I mean, obviously there was no threat until goblins came and started burning down the farms. But that's obviously very recent. Indeed, current events. Um, Historically speaking... They certainly don't have big pictures of towers or stars or anything anywhere. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, there's no... um, Neither the buildings nor the situation of this farm seems to have been chosen with any interest in defense. They could have except built a palisade wall, but they didn't. Yeah, except for the old road under, you know, the old road under our feet, which still has some bits. Yeah. Yep. Yep. No, you can still see that the paving stones have still been used. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're further away from the Greenway now, but there were still, I presumably the road to the Lonelands was an old one, too. Right, that the the fork yeah. uh, there just to the southeast of Hadena, with the main road continuing up 
through Bree towards Fornost. But the other one heading up to... Um, anyway. Okay. Well, here we are. And next time... So the forefathers were nothing but the vague patterns on the stones beneath their feet. That's right. That's right. Next time we shall return to Skurlock Farm, and from here we shall begin exploring all of these enticing ruins that we see around about. Um, many of which I believe are on the map, but some of which I think might not be. Um, hmm. So, we shall return to Skurlock Farm, I don't doubt, several more times while we explore this area. Uh, yes. In the meantime, I'll let folks go as it's getting late. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for Laurie. Good night. Good night.